Uh, my name is Bert Caesar. Let me introduce and please give a round of applause to Paulette Randall, <laughs> Bonnie Greer, Hugh Quashie, and Winston Pinnock. So we have 45 minutes to be comprehensive and definitive about the contribution of black artists to theater in the years 1980 to 2000. At least we start with a good, excellent air conditioning. Um, let me just uh, ask you individually, the 1980s, those were, for all of us, our apprentice years, the years we started out, learning our skills, which we then applied with some optimism to the profession, the 1980s, 1990s. <laughs> give me, just give me two or three recollections or remembrances which come to you from that period. Winston, can I start with you? Yeah. I don't remember much. <laughs> it's a long time. It feels like a long time ago. But one of the things that um, I do remember is I joined the Royal Court Young Writers Group, which was then based um, in a little shed at, at the Royal Court. And we had a, a leader, a writer called Stephen Wakelam, who led this group of young writers. And I was writing my first play. Um, at this time and I just remember how exciting it was because um, for the first time I felt like a writer we, there were all these kids just meeting in this shed every week and I'd stay up all night just writing and um, I'd wake up in the middle of the night and and just write 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 because we were being made to feel as though there was a you know there was um, that we were artists and I used to sort of uh, from that point on, I sort of would carry around a sheaf of papers under my arm, just this kid, and I would tell people I was a writer. So for me, that's one of the memories that I was you encouraged school? to you write. Were at school then? No, I wasn't. I just graduated from Goldsmiths um, College, and um, but it had always been my dream, if you like, to be to be a writer. I'd written mm -hmm. from the time that I was seven years old, mm -hmm. and then when I was in the shed with all these other artists, actors, as well as writers and directors, young, very young people, it suddenly became a very exciting possibility. Mm. That's, that fits into one of the buzzwords of the time, isn't it? Community. That was a very strong word, wasn't it? Yes. Any, any, anything else? One, you've got one more choice. One more choice. Um, I also remember that <coughs> it was a time, for me, I was a, a, a young feminist. And that also was very exciting. And I'd been a feminist since the age of about 11. I went to a school where all my teachers had suddenly become feminists. <laughs> and so they, um, and the school I went to was the school where, which hosted the first feminist conference in this country. So all these women suddenly became members of groups where they were going to these consciousness raising groups. And my teachers passed that on to me. And so they'd show us films called things like Take It Like a Man, Ma'am, which, <laughs> which had all the sort of roles reversed, which at the time was quite, um, quite something, where the men were doing all the things that women were, supposedly, were supposed to do. Um, so I was a feminist. I was going to these consciousness-raising groups. I was thinking about my role as a woman. I was very interested in the whole thing of androgyny and all this kind of thing, which found its way into one of my plays. 
But at the same time, there was another exciting development, which was that a lot of women writers were coming to the fore, women's histories were being rediscovered, and um, black women writers were starting to become actually very fashionable. Uh, in America, in particular, so Toni Morrison and um, Alice Walker. So it made you think, as a young black woman, that there was... Um, there was an outlet for the things that you might want to say yourself. So those, those were the two things that, for me as a young woman, were going on. And um, I suppose those are the things that still define me. I'm still a feminist um, and still excited by that, yes. Paulette, you have a connection, haven't you? Because you directed one of Winsome's yeah, early I directed, plays. I directed Leave Taking uh, for The National. Well, we did a tour that was kind of like um, one of those educational tours where you go to the glamorised toilets of Great Britain and then your prize is to come into the Cottesloe for a, a run. But that was, I can't remember what year that was now, Winston. I can't either. It was a long time ago. It was, yeah. it was probably around about that same time, that yeah. period. Yeah. So what would you recollect as being something that sort of animates the 1980s, 1990s? I think one of the things that um, is still quite surprising is that back then there was something like in London alone, there were 17 black and Asian theatre companies. So it felt like it was something that you could get involved with. You know, if you couldn't get through the doors of the other great establishments, there was something there, and it's a kind of training ground. Um, so that was brilliant. So I remember that and doing quite a lot of work and meeting lots of people. And, uh, and there seemed to be more spaces as well at yeah. the time, weren't there? Yeah. It just felt like it was, um, it was possible, really. And uh, so we got on with it and did it. Mm -hmm. But there were lots of other things that I remember as well. They were forever having seasons all over the place. So um, I remember once uh, upstairs at the Royal Court, they had a season of um, young black writers and we wrote and performed our own stuff and it was called Talking Black. And, uh, and that ran for a couple of weeks, I think if I remember rightly. So that was great. But then also we had the um, black theatre season at the Arts Theatre in um, the West End. So, you know, there was lots of things happening that just made you feel like we were really part of the theatrical community. Mm -hmm. Hugh, what are, you, what are your recollections of uh, this seminal time? Well, I remember a man called Alton Kumalo, who founded the Temba Theatre Company. I remember seeing him perform. And that was, of course, in the days of um, uh, apartheid. The regime hadn't um, um, crumbled by then. And there was an awful lot of uh, energy and anger um, which meant there were highs and lows. Some of the, the stuff that we did we came out of the agitprop tradition of theatres. There was an awful lot of didactic, for want of a better word. And I, I remember I, I was in one piece called Black Slaves, White Chains. Um, the author redeemed himself. <laughs> Unfortunately, never saw the light of day because <laughs> the, uh, the, there wasn't enough money to go on tour. So, you know, there was... The, the theatre companies were surviving on a kind of a wing and a prayer and a lot of funding. Uh, well, some, some funding from the Arts Council. All that funding has since dried up, of course. Sure, and we which had the is, DLC as well, yeah, yeah. and that helped. But which is that why way, there were yeah. no longer 17 theatre companies. But um, I remember uh, one of the highlights for me was seeing, actually seeing you and Victor Romero Evans in Welcome Home, Jacko. And that was Black Theatre Co-op, wasn't it? I mean, there was some... The, the point is, I suppose, that in order to find a nugget you have to mine a ton of rubble sometimes. <laughs> and there was an awful lot of stuff that wasn't very good, but it was in the process of evolving. There was a, it was a process of, of a discussion, you know, of working things out for ourselves and trying to find a way of telling our own story. 
um, because let's face it, most of the, the, of the um, stories in which we had, most of the platforms in which we had an opportunity to, to shine were, were plays written by dead white males. I mean, in, in my case, it was The Great White Hope, which is a great play, um, Howard Sackler, which has almost Shakespearean uh, proportions mm -hmm. to it. And that was at, at the, the, uh, the tricycle. And I think you know, the, the tricycle was um, uh, in the forefront of, uh, of trying to boost not just black theater, of course, but Irish theater. Mm -hmm. You know, um, but uh, I also at that time spent um, a season in Manchester um, in a company which was uh, in a season which was called Britain Now, you know, and they were trying to find a way of telling familiar stories, which included Cymbeline, uh, Great Expectations, and um, the Admirable Crichton, in fact, <laughs> but with a with a, a, a multi-ethnic cast, and, uh, and that that were, was an interesting time, but. Um, the, it's always a question of, uh, for me, the, the defining moment, I suppose, is going to the RSC with a sense of um, expectation, a sense of promise, because the, the earlier generation of actors had been people who had been perceived to be uh, black actors who didn't speak English with, the, with English accents, you know, who either spoke with broad African or West Indian accents. And so there was a new generation, supposedly, you know, um, of which I was a part, who spoke in, in idiomatic English with, a, with an English accent. And so all doors were supposed to be open. Of course, that didn't happen. And I, at the end of my first season, I, um, I'd been understudying Tim Dalton as Hotspur. Uh, when he left to do James Bond, um, I was asked to take over. Um, <laughs> well, I, I did eventually play James Bond, but uh, that was on an audio go book. And, uh, available now, Dr. No, it's a great read. <laughs> so it's a great listen. No, um, I, I took over as Hotspur, um, and you know, did it, did it uh, creditably well. And I did think uh, I had expected at the end of that season to be to have talks about, um, you know, parts for the future. But I got a postcard in the internal mail uh, saying, no, there was nothing for us. Thanks for, for all your hard work um, from the casting department. And I found out subsequently just as well, I didn't know about it at the time, that um, there had been quite a bit of resistance from within the cast to my playing the role, the historical role of Hotspur. But my colleagues had the, the good manners to say this behind my back. <laughs> there, I did have allies in the company, but to my surprise and to my dismay, there, were, there was a kind of uh, an entrenched conservatism about... Well, what, what, what were the grounds? I mean, there you are speaking, you know, um the Queen's English, um, dare I say, coming out of uh, Oxford University. Can I mention that to you? What, what grounds do people have to object to you playing <laughs> Prince Hal? Well, um, Other because than the obvious. I, I was actually in a college in Oxford, and I shared a staircase with Earl Percy, the direct descendant of Harry Percy. <laughs> he was um, blonde almost to the point of being Albina. So that may have had something to do with it. <laughs> the fact that I was not an albino. <laughs> no, I, mean, I, I think, <laughs> I think that the thing is that um, there's, a, there's been historically a kind of paradox about Shakespeare's plays. On the one hand, people say that they are universal. On the other hand, a history play is history. And, uh, and there weren't supposedly um, black aristocrats or black uh, uh, Geordies at the time. Um, and I, I think there was a sense that this would have a kind of um, alienating effect on an audience. People would find it difficult to suspend disbelief if a black actor played uh, Harry Percy, played Hotspur. 
Um, I'm guessing that's, that's had something to do with it. It might also have been because they thought there were, there were other people more uh, um, deserving of the role. You know? I, I don't know. But um, it, was, um, it did bring home, I suppose, the, fact that the, the question as to how inclusive uh, the uh, conventional theatre was. And I, I decided that actually, well, that was the beginning of, of, my, of my realization that um, uh, the theatre is not that inclusive, and Shakespeare in particular can be quite exclusive. Um, and I think it's wrong. I think it's a fallacy to say that Shakespeare's plays are universal. The stories might be, but he didn't invent any of the stories apart possibly from one. The plays cannot be, you cannot separate the plays from the language and the language you need to be tutored in before you can fully understand it. So that the plays are a matter of, um, of education, if you like. And I, mean, I, I came here the other day to see uh, um, Othello and um, from where I could see, I think there were about two and a half black people in the audience. You know. <laughs> Uh, the half being my daughter. But funny, <laughs> there, there, there is, there, there's some strange dichotomies going on, because just to, 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 to follow that up, I remember having a conversation with a fellow actor, uh, an English actor who I got on very well with. We worked together at the Royal Court. And I was telling him about my desire to play Henry IV Part I, Prince Hal, because it's the first play I'd read as a boy in St. Kitts, where I was born. And uh, I felt I knew Prince Hal, you know, those lines, you know. Um, I'll so offend to make offense a skill, redeeming time and men think least I will. I mean, I knew guys like that. And he said, but Bert, you can't do that. I mean, that's, he's, he's English, he's English. Then he suddenly went, but you know, the best King Lear I've ever seen was James Earl Jones in New York. And there's some, some strange mental gymnastics go on about <laughs> people thinking about casting and about what's universal, what's true. So Bonnie, that brings me to you. Uh, the 80s, what, what do you recall? I mean, you, you've got two, two strands, two continents that you can refer to. Well, I was living in New York for about six years by the middle of the 80s. And I was studying at the Negro Ensemble Company with uh, Steve Carter. Um, and I was also studying at the Actors Studio uh, Playwright Unit, the, the real Actors Studio, not the celebrity show they have on TV. And you know, I was lucky enough to be there at the time when these old great people from the theater were still alive. So Aaliyah Kazan ran the actor's studio. Uh, Joe Mankiewicz was one of the teachers, Arthur Penn. And so that was the ambience that I was coming of age as a writer in. And at the same time, I was downtown working at the New York Shakespeare Festival Public Theater in Joe Papp's office working really closely with Joe to develop writing and uh, new writing. And down in the Xerox room copying the scripts I had to read was Kevin Spacey. And so I'd see Spacey down there sort of being really Spacey, you know, <laughs> doing the, you know, ro rolling, uh, you know, running off those scripts. I still see him doing that. And, um, and then one day, um, this show, two things happened. Uh, Max Stafford Clark used to come to the Shakespeare Festival, to the public theater, once a year with a play. And he usually brought over Carol Churchill or something. And that was such a revelation to all of us. Uh, to see uh, British theater, English theater, it looked so buoyant. And so um, uh, it, was, it was rebellious, it was buoyant, it was dirty. It was all the things that American theater really wasn't. 
for me. American theater was quite cautious, especially black American theater. Um, and that's, I, I think maybe you came over with Welcome Back, Jacko. Were you in that no, company? I, I didn't okay. I remember that. And Mustafa, I met Mustafa Matura, who said, oh, you should come to London for, you know, a couple of weeks and stuff. And um, the thing to remember about um, African Americans theater, and it, it kind of still is today, but not as much, is that the African American, black American experience uh, comes through only one or two or three strands. Uh, my father is, was from Mississippi. Um, he grew up as a sharecropper. He moved to the north. My mother was born in Tennessee. She moved to Chicago. That's where they met. Most African Americans have a rural southern background. That's why we all kind of tend to sound alike. Um, although, you know, part of that is the segregation as well of the housing because we didn't get a chance to move around. Um, and then there's the other strand of African American life where maybe you were what Americans would call middle class, so you had a doctor or a teacher um, or a lawyer in your family. And then there was the other strand where you owned a business, a small business like a, um, you know, funeral parlor or cleaners or a couple of shops or a few trucks. And that was the matrix of the experience where a lot of the work comes from. August Wilson chronicles that kind of matrix in a brilliant way. But that was where a lot of the theater came from. I mean, Joe had the uh, Black and Hispanic Shakespeare Company where uh, Morgan Freeman came to prominence. Uh, you could see Samuel L. Jackson. So you got to see black actors doing Shakespeare. And then, so here comes, uh, but the theater was starting to dry up a bit because the real estate was changing and you couldn't make, you couldn't have spaces anymore because New York was shifting. Then I'm in Joe's office one day, you know, looking at some scripts for the New York Times Magazine. And I opened the page and there's this beautiful picture of this guy called Yu Quashi. And he was at the Royal Shakespeare Company. <laughs> and I'm looking at this brother's face, and I'm, you know, there was no equivalent in the United States of what he was doing. I was completely shocked. And then came Welcome Back Jacko, which for me gave me a whole universe of experience of African people of African descent. And I began to see the diversity within Britain, in black Britain. There were people coming from all the islands, from the con Africa itself, a mixture. We just didn't have that in the United States. It's still not really there. Um, and I, I thought as a writer, I needed to expand my own field of being by seeing these different theaters. You're talking about Temba, Talawa, Theater of Black Women, um, uh, black Theater Cooperative, there were a bunch of writers at the Royal Court. There was just so much black activity going on. But most importantly, there were writers and directors because that's the core of what happens in any theater are the writers and then the directors. And so that's why I came over. Um, I remember I was in a, uh, Mustafa met me. I met Paulette and I still remember her. She's She's a little girl as far as I'm concerned, always will be. Her and her sister, Bert I met at the time, and didn't meet you, he was too big for me, but I was thinking about him. Um, and I remember one day, uh, um, 
Mustafa had, we were in a car going, I think, to, to, to Notting Hill, to some roster place Mustafa used to hang out at. And we, he drove past this place, and I said, oh, you know, being an American, oh, it's the National Theater. And Mustafa said, you're the National Front Theater. And I thought, what's the National Front? <laughs> you know, so, um, so it, was, it was that kind of um, encounter for me where this looked to me at the time, uh, there was television as well, black people were on television. This was not in the United States. We had the Bill, we had the Bill Cosby show. I was actually asked to write for Cosby. And I looked at it and I thought, but this, you know, this isn't about but black people. There, there, there was obviously a lot of optimism around, which, there, which there because, you know, that, which we can all address. Field. There was a but, huge field of but, being but, in. But you should mention the National Theater. Uh, one of the directors at that time, one of the artistic directors, uh, who is an honorable man, um, Richard Eyre. He published uh, a few years back uh, some conversations. They're called Conversations with Theatre People. <coughs> there are about 35 conversations in his book. And that kind of book inevitably, inevitably becomes a sort of a record for posterity. It's a legacy. So it's a legacy if book. you read this book in 30, 40 years' time, Richard Eyre's Conversations with Theatre People, there's one black person in it. That's uh, August Wilson. What does that tell us? What do you think that tells us about, and I mean, it, it, we know the obvious answer, but what is it, what's the deeper, the, the deeper sort of uh, answer, you think, to that kind of absence, that kind of exclusion? Let me go to Winsome. What, what, do you, what, what would you say? I'm not sure how I would answer that entirely. I was thinking as Bonnie was speaking about, you know, just being a writer at that time and, and why, you know, you think about it's a whole idea of silence as a writer. Um, you address, th th that's, that's what your very being is about, is about actually speaking to that silence or kind of unveiling it, uncovering it. And I just, I just want, sorry, just to go back to what she was saying and then maybe someone else will <laughs> answer the Richard Eyre thing, is, is that for me as a working class um, woman, at the time, who was the first person in my family to go to university, who was brought up on the council estates of, you know, in London, in North London. And the things that we, we experienced at that time were incredible. It was an incredibly painful time. My generation was a generation that felt that we were in between, and we didn't exist on stage. This is, this is what you're kind of saying, um, you know, we didn't exist for people who wrote that book or who were directing Shakespeare or whatever. And that experience was something that wasn't being written about or actually was being distorted. Very, I very much felt as a young person growing up in London that I was being lied about, actually, because we were all kind of drawn, that the stereotypes were very strong at the time that were presented in, on TV, um, in the public, in the news, and so as a writer, you had this strong urge just to write some of it, you know, just to, that, and that's what you do, you, you, that's what we, that's what I do, I don't really, you know, or that's what I wanted to do, I, I, I wasn't that fussed about other people telling my story, I wanted to tell it, and I wanted to write for black actors, that was the whole thing, that was the only thing I wanted to do, was not for them to say, have the need for Richard Eyre or someone to create these stories, but for people like myself 
to write roles that actors would want to play, that anyone would want to do, actually? Hugh. Well, um, the fundamental question is, um, who is theatre for? And I mentioned that when I, when I was in this very theatre the other day, there were, I saw two and a half black people. Um, when I was performing, um, there were uh, several occasions when I'd look around the theatre and, and uh, come out of character just for a moment and say, once again, I am the only black man in this entire building. You know, um, and uh, talking to Clark Peters not long ago, and uh, he was saying that even when they were doing bubbling brown sugar, you know, um, a kind of feel-good musical, um, th there were very few black faces in the audience. The white faces, you know, outnumbered the black faces ten to one. Um, so the, the question is really is, um, were uh, how many black practitioners in the established theatre were there available for for Richard Ed to to talk to? Um, you know, we, um, when, I, when I worked here, it was to do a, an August Wilson play uh, called Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And we all had some hopes of there being a transfer. We didn't get a West End transfer. We got an East End transfer to the Hackney Empire. You know, and, uh, but even there, it took a while before the audiences built up. Um, and it, you just have to um, ask the question, is theatre, <laughs> go, going to the theatre, a part of our respective cultures. Um, it can be, I mean, the guy who always packed them in was, uh, was Oliver, I think, um, in, the, in the Hackney Empire. Samuels. Oh, Oliver Samuels, the actor, you know. But um, will black people, are black, are black people flocking to see Adrian Lester, uh, Othello? I don't think so. Um, you know, the thing is, though, uh, within the kind of remits of, of companies like the National Theatre, you have terms like integration, mm. inclusivity, diversity, etc which somehow don't seem to get fully through. So, Paulette, can I ask you, again, just referring to that sort of posterity, looking back at this time through the writings of various theatre mandarins, how come these ideas can't get into policy when, for instance, and forgive me for bringing this up, but I suppose I have to, you were involved with the Olympic opening ceremony in a very senior role. Mm. You managed to get those kinds of ideas and narratives in, inclusivity, integration, Etc. What's the what's the kind of thinking that goes on to make that happen? So it doesn't just rely on the whim of one particular individual deciding to cast people of color in in a certain role or because put in a certain play. Because it has to be part of a plan. It can't just be <laughs> waiting for people to have goodwill or um, imagine that one day it will happen. You have to do it. That's the difference, really. You have to say this is what we're going to do, and we're going to do this rather than wait for anybody to say, actually, maybe... But it must also good. come from a sense of a personal, a personal truth which you feel you share with the majority or with a large section of, of a community which isn't being told properly in public uh, forums. Well, the answer really is that if you have somebody like Danny Boyle as the artistic director of the uh, opening ceremony, you're going to get something that is going to be much more inclusive because that's the kind of person he is. And sadly, a lot of theatre is down to personalities, which is where the goodwill thing just doesn't happen. If your personality is that way inclined, then things can be changed. But if not, it remains the same. But Bonnie, do you want to respond to that, uh, that question? Because in a sense, if someone like Joe Papp, who ran the public theatre with the New York Shakespeare Festival, an equivalent space to the National Theatre, classics, ancient and modern, new plays, if he were writing a book, Conversations with Theatre People, about the years 1980 to 2000, it wouldn't include just one person of colour, would it? 
No, uh, and you know, to be really, um, I mean, I've been here long enough and been involved in enough, so I suppose high-end things to say. The big difference is that this nation is still run by an aristocracy. And by the word aristocracy, I mean a, a republic for a few. That's what aristocracy means, for a few. If you get to be one of the few, you can do things kind of, <coughs> but, you, but you're usually born into the few, or you're usually educated into the few. And this, this is, in fact, actually one of the great things about, uh, um, well, in, in Henry V, when, uh, in the great speech, where he says, we happy few, it's the few. And this country is about the few. And, and America, and it is you know, very, very, very far from being perfect, is not about the few. So even though the, the few only get it, but, it, but, the, but, the ethos, <laughs> but the ethos is not that. So you can play that game. So, the so we need a more Republican spirit, well, anti well, you know, no, spirit. I, I, no, I think um, that the, the issue of the few uh, has to be looked at, and, uh, and I think in a very serious way. For instance, I was saying to Paulette, I've been on this stage five times as a speaker, but you know, to be able to be a playwright to enter this stage is a very difficult proposition that doesn't have a lot to do with your being able to write. It has a lot to do with being attached to the few. And, and, it be, and it comes down to, you know, I think, I think black people in this country have made an incredible um, um, entities within a, a society that is about the few. And, you know, as someone who grew up in the United States, and I've stopped saying it because it just, you know, you can't say it. But you know, I say to young black people all the time, I mean, this is your building. This belongs to you, you pay for this, it's tax money. So that, that's kind of where it sort of starts, but you can't say that if people still are caught up in the few.